And by way of doing so, you want to get a background to this section. John chapter 119 to 211 is the three witnesses to Christ. John chapter 2, verse 12 to John 4, 54, give us the work of Christ in his initial ministry, the work of Jesus Christ. And the work of Christ is conducted in this section. It covers about uh, the work of Christ covers about eight months, about eight months. And it takes place in four places, four places. Now let's get our Bibles and, and, and look at these four and then we'll write them down on the board. It's going to take place in four places. Number one, let's take our Bibles down, turn over there to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13. All right, what do we find in John 2, 13? What is the place in which this, these first events take place? Jerusalem. John chapter 2, verse 13. And the Jews passed over his hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we have, number one, his work in Jerusalem. And that covers chapter 2, 12 to 3, 21. 212 to 321. And that covers about one week. There's about one week there. And that's the Passover week. And there are three events. First of all, he cleanses the temple. Secondly, uh, there's the response of the crowd. John chapter 2, 23, 24, 25. And then the third thing is that interview with one man. What was his name? Nicodemus. Now, is that what's on your outline? What are those three major points on your outline? The cleansing of the temple, is that point one? What's point two? The response of the crowd. And what's point three? All right, Nicodemus. See, so those are the three things in Jerusalem. That covers about one week. All right, number two. Look over John chapter three. John chapter three, verse 22. He leaves Jerusalem and he goes to a second place. Where's that? In Judea. Now, Judea is the... Well, it's like Memphis is Jerusalem and Judea is West Tennessee. Judea is the large state. Jerusalem is the city. So he's in Judea, and he's in Judea from chapter 3, 22 to 36. And the key word there, look at verse 20, look at 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he, what is the verb? Terry, you know how long he tarried there? About eight months. What was he doing? What's the last word? Baptizing for eight months. Baptizing for eight months. In the land of Judea, almost eight months. You say, how do you know? Well, I'll come to that. Now, the third, after he finishes that, after he finishes that, we come, well, you say, how do you know? How do you know that? Well, I'll show you how you know. This event takes place at Passover in Jerusalem, and that's April, April. Now, in Judea, turn over to John chapter 4 when he goes to Samaria. John chapter 4, verse 35. John 4, 35. 4, 35. He goes up to Samaria. That's the third place. And John 4, 1 through 35 covers just a couple of days. And it says there, say not ye there yet, how many months? And then cometh, 
Harvest, harvest is around in April. Harvest around April. So four months, March, April, March, February, January. One was Passover, April ahead. So we got April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, and then four months until the harvest here. Four months. So that gives us eight months. And he's in Judea, eight months. And what does it say he does primarily? Baptize. Eight months. Did you know that? Eight months. Why did he spend eight months? The synoptic gospels pass over this in silence. Why did Jesus spend eight months? Because Jesus Christ came first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He offered the kingdom to Israel. See, he offered the kingdom of Israel. They rejected it. Where was the heart of the nation of Israel? Jerusalem and Judea. So before he went north to Galilee, where he conducted most of his ministry, and the Synoptic Gospels covered the ministry, the two-year ministry in Galilee, before he went up to Galilee and offered himself to Jews outside the heartland of Judaism, up in Galilee, he offered himself at Jerusalem and Judea for eight months, baptizing and offering himself. And as John did, offering, no doubt, the kingdom of heaven, it was refused and postponed. See, I am a dispensationalist. We believe that Jesus Christ offered the kingdom to Israel. They rejected it. It's now in mystery form, Matthew chapter 13, and God is going to, Jesus is going to come someday and establish his kingdom upon this earth. I am a premillennial. I'm premillennial. I also believe that God, uh, that Jesus Christ made a bona fide offer of the kingdom of Israel, offered it right at the heart for eight months, eight months in Judea. Then he left. And John chapter 4 tells us, verse 1, John 4, 1, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not the disciples, he left Judea, and departed again to go into Galilee, but he must needs go through where? So the third place he goes is in Samaria. And he's there, and you know the story, the Samaritan woman. And that's about, um, it takes only a couple of days in Samaria. In Samaria. And he had the story of the Samaritan woman and the people from that city of Sychar who came out and were saved through Jesus' ministry. He was just there a few days. Now, John chapter 4, verse 43, 443. Now there, after two days, how long did he stay in Samaria? Two days. He wasn't there long. How long was he first in Jerusalem? A week, eight, ten days. About a week, ten days. How long was he in Judea? Eight months. How long in Samaria? Two days. Now, verse 43, after two days he departed from there, Samaria, and went into where? Galilee. Galilee. 4, 43 to 54. And now this is where the synoptic gospels pick up the story once again in Galilee. Now, let's take our Bibles, because I dare say that most people have been studying the Bible 
Sunday school for 30 years, 20, 30 years, and have never put the four Gospels together and seen them in chronological form. Take your Bible and go over to Matthew. Let's do it in Mark. You can do it just as easily in Matthew, just as easily in Mark, just as easily in Luke. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because they look at the ministry of Jesus synoptic with one eye. They give us the same events. All right, now let's look at Mark chapter 1 because it'll be easier to see it. Mark, Mark's an abbreviated gospel. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. When we come to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we have the ministry of John the Baptist, just as I have it up there on the blackboard, the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, John doesn't give us that. John doesn't give us that. Secondly, we have in verses 9 and 10 and 11 the baptism of Jesus by John. That's the second event. That begins the ministry of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus by John. And then we have in verses 12 and 13, and immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And they is there in the wilderness 40 days, tested by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. And there's the temptation of Jesus. Now, look at verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into where? Now, besides about a half-inch space or a quarter-inch space between verse 13 and verse 14, what else do you have? What did I tell you about a month ago to put in there? And you didn't do it, some of you. John 1, 19... Yeah, all we just been covered. The three witnesses, all this eight months period goes right between verse 13 and verse 14. The synoptic gospels skip all this Judean ministry. And they come back and begin right here where John chapter 4, 44 to 54, 42 to 43 to 54, and Matthew chapter, Mark, Mark chapter 4, verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And now begins the Galilean ministry. And John doesn't tell us much about the Galilean ministry. Why? Because the synoptic gospels already have. See? John is interested primarily in Jesus' presentation of himself to the nation of Israel. That's why he has the signs. That's why he has the witnesses. So we got four things here in the work of Jesus. Covered about eight months altogether. And most of that eight months was spent what place? Judea, Judea, and it runs from about April 27 to about December 27, December 27, January 28. And what's about the first thing that happens when we, we leave John, and then the next event, John chapter 5, takes us, uh, there's a four-month hiatus there, and the next event is when Jesus comes by the seashore and calls Four disciples to service. The call of our disciples to service. So he got the work of Christ, took about eight months. John chapter 2, 12 to 454. First, number one, about one week, where? I am, where? And then number two, about eight months in the Judea. And then number three, just a few days, Samaria. And then number four, in Galilee. And now begins what's called the Greater Galilean Ministry, which lasts for about 
22 months or almost two years. Now, that's what we're going to, that's, we're going to be taking this up now for several weeks. And uh, when we come to, when we come to this first one now, looking at this one right here in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, the minute, the work of Jesus in Jerusalem, chapter 212 to 321, we have three things, cleansing of the temple, and then secondly, response of the crowd, and number three, the story of Nicodemus, those three things. Now, what I'd like to cover tonight is the cleansing and the response. What we will probably be only able to, to cover is the cleansing of the temple, because I spent a little more time than I anticipated but I think it's important to do so on that first one. Now, what's the general subject? John 1, 19, John 2, 13 or 12 to 454, the work of Christ. John 1, 19 to 2, 11, the witnesses to Christ. John 2, 12 to 454, the work of Christ. Where's that work? First, Jerusalem, second, Third and fourth, back in Galilee, a little over eight months. What is this called? This is called the Judean or the early Judean ministry. It's called the early Judean because just before his death and crucifixion a few months, there was a later Judean ministry. But this is the first Judean ministry, and it's virtually omitted by the synoptic gospels given to us in John. All right, now, having given that background, let's take our Bibles and read John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. I think that would be the best way to get it in front of us. John chapter 2, verse 12. After this, after the turning of water into wine, Jesus went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples and they continue there not many days, a month, month and a half. We're not quite sure. They stayed there from the time they tur he turned the water into wine until he went down for the first Passover in April 27 A.D. Verse 13, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. When he made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. And they poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold the doves, Take these things from here. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath consumed me, eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto them, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, here's the, the, the story of the cleansing of the temple. Before we look at it, need to say that there are two cleansings 
of the temple in Jesus' ministry. There are two cleansings of the temple in Jesus' ministry. John records one that stands at the beginning of his ministry. In John chapter 2, verse 12, the synoptic gospels record a cleansing of the temple that takes place on the Monday prior to his crucifixion, right near the end of his ministry. Now, you pick up a liberal textbook. You pick up a textbook written by a liberal or a life of Christ written by a liberal or even some Sunday school literature. It'll tell you, these will tell you, that those two are the same, but they're not. They're not. They're two different cleansings, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end of his ministry. And there are seven or eight, uh, and I don't have time, don't plan to, don't think it's the uh, kind of discussion into which we ought to get into class like this, but there are seven, eight reasons why uh, these two are not the same, good substantial reasons. The vocabulary is different. The time which it takes place is different. The condemnation Jesus puts upon them for what they were doing is different. In John's gospel, it's because, in the synoptics, it's because you have made my father's house a den of thieves. He condemns them for exploitation. But in the gospel of John, John chapter 2, he condemns them for the fact that they are using the temple to do it, for secularization of the temple. He condemns them on two different counts. Furthermore, you remember the trial of Jesus? They brought in false witnesses. What'd they say? We heard him say, I will destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. They misquoted him. And the Bible tells us that the three witnesses couldn't get it straight. Now, are you listening to me? See, those were not quoted in the second cleansing. They were quoted only in this one, the first cleansing. This took place three years before his death. The second cleansing took place about three or four days before his death. Now, if these two are the same, and Jesus had made that statement three or four days, those witnesses would have remembered it and would have been able to quote it exactly. But they didn't. They weren't able to. Why? Because when he said that, it was at the first cleansing of the temple. And it was vague in their mind. They couldn't remember it clearly. There are many differences. The liberal's assumption is based on the idea that the same event cannot happen twice, which is a ridiculous assumption. But they go through the Bible and they take many of these things that take place twice or three times and say they're simply different versions of the same thing when they're not, based on the assumption. Now, William Barclay says, and I mention this again because I find... A lot of Christians who swear by his books, when as a matter of fact, they are liberally oriented. Barclay says, the Bible is not concerned in facts, but in truth. But as a matter of fact, you can't have truth without facts. That's a very, uh, that's a very uh, critical distinction, improper distinction, which uh, the neo-Orthodox make today. The Bible's not concerned in facts. Don't worry about whether the chronologies are correct. Don't worry about the events in Genesis 1 to 11. What we're concerned about is truth. The whole argument today 
about verbal inspiration. And inerrancy is located at that point. We believe that the Bible is concerned in both facts and truth. And if the facts are not correct, then the truth which flows out of them is not correct either. There are two cleansings, one at the beginning of his ministry, John tells us about that, one at the end of his ministry, and the synoptics tell us about that. Now, on the outline, one is to look at ten things. Is that what you have on your outline? How many points? Ten things. Ten things. All right, number one is the prelude. The prelude. That doesn't quite fit under the cleansing, but to make it easy, I put it there. John chapter 2, verse 12. Here's a little interlude that lies between the turning of water into wine and Jesus' visit to the Passover. And we read here in verse 12, after this, after the turning of water into wine at Cana, Jesus went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and disciples, and they continued there not many days, probably about, oh, 40, 50, 60 days. Now, here is... Um, here is Capernaum right here. Cana's right here, and uh, Capernaum is here. Um, we say, well, it's at sea level. As a matter of fact, the Sea of Galilee is about 650 feet below sea level. Capernaum was a great city in the days of Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus is going to make Capernaum his headquarters later on. In Matthew chapter 9, Capernaum is called his city. Now, he was born in Nazareth, but he located in Capernaum. That became his headquarters, so it's called his city. And so the Lord Jesus and his family moved down from Cana of Galilee, from Nazareth, where they were located, moved on down from Nazareth to Capernaum and, uh, and settled down in Capernaum and, and established residence there. And Jesus went down there and stayed there. 40, 50 days. Then from there, in April 27 AD, he leaves Capernaum and goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he's away from home for about how long? Eight months. About eight months. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then back into Galilee, and he comes back eventually to Capernaum. Capernaum. And it's the home of a couple of the disciples. And Jesus makes his headquarters at Capernaum. Capernaum was a, was a thriving, prosperous city in the days of Jesus, the seat of the custom, that is a tax collector. The IRS was located. Now, I don't know if that's anything outstanding, but it was located there, the seat of custom. There was an army garrison located in Capernaum, and it was on the north shore of Galilee. It was uh, quite a city. Now, why did Jesus locate there? We don't know at this time. Probably to set up his headquarters. We're at, when he goes down to Capernaum, it's about February or March 27 A.D. Now, the four groups go down there. Jesus went down there. And his mother, and that's the last reference to Jesus' mother until the crucifixion. And then third, his uh, brethren, and then his disciples, those six disciples whom he called in John chapter 1. Now, who are these brothers of Jesus? Let's look at that just a minute. For the brothers of Jesus. In the history of the church, there are three views of the brothers of Jesus. 
The early church believed that they were half-brothers. That is, they were, they were the, all the sons, Jesus and the others, and we know that he had at least four brothers from Mark chapter 6, and he had sisters. They were all half-brothers. That is, they were, um, they had the same father, but Jesus had no, uh, uh, they had the same mother, but Jesus didn't have the same father. They were actual later, later, later sons, later sons of Joseph and Mary. Jesus was the, what's he called? Mary's firstborn, firstborn. So after this, and, and the Bible says that Joseph knew not Mary, had no sexual relationships with her, that's the word no uh, in the Bible, had no sexual relations with her until she brought forth her firstborn son. And later on, Mary and uh, Joseph had children, and these were brothers of Mary, uh, uh, brothers of Jesus, and sisters, half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus. Now in the second century, third century, there rose the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. The church has always through the ages been plagued with the idea that celibacy was a higher state than the marital state. And Christianity inherited that from Greek philosophy. And, um, and the idea rose that celibacy was a higher state than the marital estate. And, back, and, and that lies behind all the monastic movements and all the movements of the nuns and the monasteries of the Middle Ages. And, of course, the Roman Catholic Church today, you know, is being vigorously attacked by the priests themselves. Now, as a matter of fact, Paul did say, it is a good, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, it is good if a man, that a man not touch a woman. By touch, he means marry. It's good that a man not marry. But God said in Genesis 2, it's not good for a man to dwell alone. Are those contradictory? No. No, they're not. The norm is Genesis 2. But where a man or a woman, like Paul, has the gift of celibacy, then for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, it's well that a man remains celibate. And Paul did. God does not give that gift to everyone. Father gives it to few, but does give it to some. One of the great preachers of the Presbyterian Church last century was... Uh, was uh, uh, Dr. McCartney up in Pittsburgh, a great, masterful preacher. He was a bachelor all of his life. J. Gresham Machen, who fought the battle for evangelicalism in the 1920s and 1930s, was a bachelor all of his life. He wanted to devote all of his time to scholarly study. And he was even the humanist Walter Lippmann was a humanist, said that nation completely routed the liberals. His was a strong viewpoint. And if you want to get an outstanding book at, to understand what is the difference between modernism and fundamentalism, you get nation's book, Christianity and Liberalism. It is a classic. Walter Lippmann, the humanist, said it was. And he completely routed. Well, this idea that celibacy is a higher spiritual state is false, but that thing cropped up and 
Naturally, out of that came the idea that if Mary were to be honored and revered, then she ought to remain a virgin all of her life. So there grew up this idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And because of that, there developed two other theories, one held by the Greek Orthodox Church and one by the Roman Catholic Church. One almost called the, the normal view, the view that's held by Protestants, is called the Helvidian theory, after Helvidius. And that is that these were later sons and daughters of Mary and Joseph. The second view is that uh, called the Epiphaninian view because it was named after that man, but held by the Greek Orthodox Church, is that these were earlier sons of Joseph. They were sons of Joseph by a previous marriage. His first wife died, and he married, therefore, married Mary. And Mary and Joseph never had any intimate relationship, and therefore it conserved the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, the Roman Catholic Church takes the position that these brothers are, as a matter of fact, really cousins of Jesus and not. And there's a lot of support. I'm not going into that. When I teach the life of Christ, we study that, you know, to some extent. But I want to just say that there's no evidence for the last two that these are real half-brothers of Jesus. They had the same mother, but they didn't have the same father. I sent down to the printer today a little track that you will all receive if you're on our mailing list. You'll receive it along with an appeal letter that I'm going to send out. It's called The Three Miracles of Bethlehem. The Three Miracles of Bethlehem. Now, I'm not going to tell you what they are because you wouldn't read it. You may not anyway, <laughs> but you wouldn't for sure. But one of them is the miracle of virgin birth. You ought to know what we mean when we speak of the virgin birth. Now, let's go on to the second point. The second point is the time of the cleansing. John chapter 2, verse 13. The time of the cleansing. The time of the cleansing is Passover season. Read verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There were three feasts that, uh, at which uh, Jews, uh, Orthodox Jews were required to attend if they could do so. And the uh, Passover was one of them. The Passover took place on the 14th of Nisan. Now, there were two feasts that were established. You go back to Exodus 12 and Exodus 13. And they sometimes are both called by the term Passover. There was the actual Passover feast that took place on the 14th of Nisan. That was only one night, one 24-hour period. Then followed what was called the Feast of Unleavened bread. And sometimes the word Passover is used for both of these, and that lasted for seven days. And the Jews, you know, took out all leaven during that time from their home. Didn't eat anything made with leaven. I had a professor of Hebrew at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Feinberg, who's spoken here. He was reared in an Orthodox Jewish home. He told me that his mother had two sets of dishes and two sets of silverware, and two sets, perhaps, of napkins. I remember the dishes, the whole lump. Perch out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, 
That's the one night event. When the lamb was slain, it were a lamb. It didn't always have to be a lamb. The Passover, the Passover animal was sacrificed. So Christ, our Passover sacrifice, sacrificed for us. Verse 8, let us therefore keep, now what's the next one? Keep the what? That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven stands for sin. Let us therefore keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wonder if you'd look up here. Beautiful symbolism here. Two things, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover, they ate the Passover lamb, just as they did in Exodus chapter 12. Then they instituted the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. The Passover, that Passover feast, represents what Jesus did for us at the cross. He died for us sinners. The Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks of the Christian life. So, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is my whole Christian experience. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, verse 7. Now what does he say in verse 8? Let us therefore keep the feast. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now we don't have any Feast of Unleavened Bread. You see, just as we don't kill any Passover today, our Passover was slain, Jesus. He died for us. Keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread means simply live a solid, vigorous, Christian life, dealing with sin, mortifying the lust of the flesh. Live your whole life as the feast of unleavened bread. Now, this was celebrated. This is what Jesus went down to, going back to John chapter 2. This is it, John chapter 2. And when they were down at that feast, why, there were many animals that were offered. You can read this over Numbers chapter 28. Now we come to number 3, the occasion of the cleansing. John 2, 14, Jesus went down there and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of the money city. Now, the occasion of the cleansing is what Jesus found down in the temple. He found two things, selling and exchanging. Now, why were they doing this? Why were they doing this? Well, when you look here, the Jews came from all over the Roman Empire at this time, just as the Muslims today. Every devout Muslim wants one time in his life to make that trip to Mecca. If he lives in Memphis and he's a devout Muslim, he wants to make it to Mecca once in his life. If he makes it once to Mecca, he'll probably make it to heaven. See? He wants to make it. Now, every devout Jew wanted to get down to Jerusalem. At a Passover season, the city of Jerusalem was swollen. I've heard estimates up to five or six hundred thousand more people. They would have to live out in the hills all surrounding Jerusalem. That's why it was easy to get a mob when Jesus was crucified. That's why both Herod and Pilate were down there at the time Jesus was crucified. They didn't go there normally. They were always there at Passover because they knew, just like the nationalistic spirit today in Iran runs high, so nationalism ran high in Jerusalem at Passover time. And they resented, those Jews did, the yoke of the Romans upon them. They resented that money going to Rome. 
They resented these Ro they resented this Roman garrison stationed nearby. They resented it. So Pilate and Herod, the Roman governors, got down there at Passover season. It was always volatile at that time. So Jesus went down there. Now, a man go down there, he had to do two things in Orthodox Jew. Number one, he had to bring an animal and sacrifice it. Now, do you think a man that came from Athens is going to put a lamb over his shoulders? and put it on the boat and carry it down there? No. Think a man from Rome is going to put a couple of doves in a cage and carry him there? You know he's not. He's going to have to get down there and buy them. Now, what happens, what happens when things get real scarce to the price? It goes way up. So that a pair of turtle doves, Josephus, the Jewish historian, who wrote about 60, 70 A.D., Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that a pair of turtle doves, now listen, normally sold for eight cents, sold for $3.95. Secondly, they had to ask for the temple tax. The temple tax was a one-half shekel. They couldn't take the normal coins they used in Athens and Rome, or up in Antioch, or in Galilee given. That would be sacrilegious. They could only offer the special coin, the half shekel, the temple tax. So you know what they had to do? They had to get it exchanged. And you know what the rate of exchange is going to be? See, it's going to be mighty high. Now, there was a valid reason, a valid reason, a valid reason for having a place to buy sheep and doves. That's proper. There was a valid reason, perhaps, for having that money. But the things that Jesus condemned was, in the synoptics, the extortion, terrible extortion. You made this house of my father a den of thieves. And the second thing, that instead of being located a mile away, was right in the precincts of the temple. He condemned the extortion and the secularization that was going on within the temple, and eventually he drove it out. What they were doing was meeting a necessary need, but it was doing it at exorbitant rates, and it was doing it right in the precincts of the temple. By the way, there was one man that controlled all that traffic also. See. One man that controlled all that. Those places where they sold those sheep and gulls and were called the bazaars of Anna. Now, you knew who Annas was? He was the father of the high priest when Jesus was crucified. He was the real power behind the throne. Annas had been high priest from about 12 A.D. to 15 A.D. He was so corrupt that the Roman governor booted him out. So he put it, gave it to his first son, his second son, third son, fourth son, fifth son, ran out of sons. So he got a son-in-law named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, the high priest, when Jesus was crucified. But the man, the power behind the throne, was Annas. And he made hundreds of thousands of dollars. The bazaars of Annas. And Jesus was an economic threat to the religious establishment. And therefore, they crucified him. You know, uh, we had a man named uh, Henry Beard 
who had what they call the economic theory of history. If I were not a Christian, that's the theory that I would embrace, the economic theory of history. And uh, Annas controlled all these bazaars and raked off tremendous amounts because there were hundreds of thousands of animals sold at Passover season. And he charged exorbitant rates. Jesus saw this, and he saw it right in the precincts of the temple, and he dealt with it. That's what he's going to deal with when he cleanses the temple. I we go on to the fourth thing, the action of Jesus. He acted and he spoke. Verse 15, he acted, and verse 16, he spoke. Verse 15, when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. He chased them on out. Now did he put the scourge to the backs of the men who were selling the animals and changing the money? Well, all the commentators back off. They said, no, he just put it to the animals. Well, you know, really, I, I'm not concerned. If he put it to them, it wouldn't hurt me any. I mean, it wouldn't hurt me anyway. But, I mean, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't dim my view of Jesus if he used it of them, see. He drove them out. Now, do you think he drove them out by mere physical force? I don't think so. I don't think so. Think he drove them out by using supernatural force? I don't think so. I think their conscience witnessed to what he was doing. And it was the moral superiority of his person that gave strength to what he did. And he challenged them from a moral strong point. And they submitted to it. They knew he was right. They got out. He chased them out of the temple, and he overturned the money changers' temple and told them to get it all back, and the doves were probably in cages, so he told them to carry the doves out. Verse 16, he said unto them that sold doves, take these things from here, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Now, this is the key to it, right here. You want to circle one word? One word, circle one word. Circle that word M-Y. That's the key to the whole story. Here's the key to the whole story. Circle the word M-Y, my. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, Jesus is here making a claim. Here is the first public claim of Jesus to divine dignity. Jesus didn't say, make not our father's house and house of merchandise. Jesus said, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And Jesus made this claim again and again. Matter of fact, he made a claim to divine dignity in two ways, by action and by speaking. First, by cleansing the temple. That was an act. That was an act. That was an act that only the Messiah could do. See, look at verse 17. What did the disciples do in verse 17? When they saw Jesus do it, they applied to Jesus a messianic song. And disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That's Psalm 69. That's a messianic song. Now look here. When the disciples saw Jesus 
cleansed the temple, that brought to their mind Psalm 69. And the Jews of Jesus' day, as we do today, applied that to the Messiah. That speaks of uh, lifting up his heel against me. That's a messianic psalm, a psalm of Christ. And the disciples watched Jesus, and they applied a messianic psalm to Jesus. That means that they acknowledged him as what? Messiah. That means that that was an act, that was not an act of a reformer, that was an act of the Messiah. So he made a claim first by an act. He made a claim to be the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament by his action. But he made it in a deeper way by a statement here. And that statement is that word my. Take these things from here, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Do you know something Jesus never said? Well, he said it, but he didn't say it himself. Jesus never prayed our father. Jesus said, when you pray, you say, our Father. That is not the Lord's prayer. He didn't pray that. Jesus never prayed our Father. When he said to the disciples, you go and tell my disciples that I go to your God and my God, your Father, my Father. He always called God my Father. There was a unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. What we would call a, a metaphysical relationship. A relationship equals. They possess the same nature. I am, a, I am a child of God. I'm a son of God. But not in the sense that Jesus is the son of God. He's the son of God in the sense that he shares the same nature. I don't. I don't. God's given to me eternal life. I'm in his family. But I'm not equal with him. When Jesus said, my father, he was claiming divine dignity. And see, the Jews caught that. I think they caught it a little faster than some of you are catching. See? And I know something for sure. They caught it a lot quicker than some of our liberals catch it. Look over at John chapter 5. He makes the same claim. John chapter 5. Verse 16. <clears throat> Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. He violated their concept of the Sabbath. So they wanted to kill him. But Jesus answered them, what's that next word? My father works hitherto. From the days of creation right up to now, my father's working in the work of providence, and I also am associated in that work. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, number one, but also said that God was what? See, my father, his father. And how did they interpret that when he said, my father? Making himself what? See, that's the way they interpret it. That's right. Exactly right. When Jesus said, my father, he was claiming equal dignity with God the Father. 
And my friend, that's the essential meaning of the cleansing of the temple. See, don't, don't get caught up in opposition to pie suppers or ice cream suppers in the church when you read the story of the cleansing of the temple. See, that's not the main thrust. The main thrust of the cleansing of the temple is that Jesus Christ made his first open public claim to divine dignity right here. Right where? Right in the heart of Judaism. Right in, at the heart of the heart of Judaism. Where's the heart of Ju Judea? Where's the heart of Judea? Jerusalem. And where's the heart of Jerusalem? And where did Jesus make this claim? Right there. My father, my father, my father. A claim to equality with God the Father. And you know what? You know what? Jesus virtually signed his death edict right then and there. See? Right then and there when he made that claim to divine dignity. All right, back to John chapter 2. The action of Jesus in cleansing. Both by his action, cleansing the temple, by his words, Jesus was making a public claim to unique relationship to God. All right, verse 17. The effect of the cleansing upon his disciples. The disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. This action reminds the disciples of Psalm 69, verse 9. And I read that over a couple of times last night. You read it over, but not now. See, when you go home, read it over. Psalm 69. It's one of the messianic psalms. And they, they applied that psalm to Jesus because his action in cleansing the temple was not the act of a reformer but the act of Messiah. And then number six, the demand of the Jews for a sign to authenticate this claim. He said in verse, uh, verse 18, then answered the Jews and said unto them, what sign showest thou unto us? See that thou doest these things. Now why did they ask him for that sign? Well, the Jews knew, these men knew, that Jesus had done two things. He cleansed the temple, he had made that claim. Cleansing the temple was a messianic claim. By cleansing the temple this way, he was making a claim to be the fulfillment of Psalm 69. He was making a claim to be the Messiah. Now they said, where are your credentials to authenticate that claim? You go in and buy something at Goldsmith or Sears and wherever it might be, and, and uh, you write a check for it, or you go out to the airport to get a ticket, and you write a check for it, they're going to ask you for two things, aren't they? Your driver's license and a credit card. They want you to authenticate the claim that you are who that check says, claims that you are. My ambassador goes to the court of St. James in England. The first thing he does is hand over his credentials to the, whoever it is, the Prime Minister, the credentials that the President of the United States has given him to represent the President at the court of St. James in England. Now, Jesus had made a claim by action, by words. The Jews said, and in a sense properly, what are your credentials? When Elijah claimed to be a prophet, God gave him signs, miracles, credentials. 
When Moses confronted Pharaoh, what did God enable Moses to do? Turn the water into blood? Cover the land with flies? Cover them with murrain? Those were authenticating credentials. Now, Jesus made a claim. They said, what are your credentials? What sign will you show us that you have a right to make this claim and to cleanse this temple? All right, he's going to give them it. Verse 18, verse 19, Jesus answered and said, all right, here it is. Destroy this temple, and I'll, in three days I'll raise it up. Now, that's a cryptic statement, and they didn't understand it. And the disciples didn't understand it. And a lot of people who read the Bible don't understand it. <laughs> Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Verse 20, then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. And when you raise it up three days, they were aghast at that. This is the third temple, Herod's temple. First temple was Solomon's temple. It was built... Uh, built about uh, 960 B.C. It was destroyed 586 B.C. It was then rebuilt when the Jews went back after the exile. That was completed, you remember, in 516 B.C. The book of Ezra records that. It was rather pitiful compared to the first one. And the old, old man, the old, old man who came back from the exile and remember the first temple and saw the second called Zerubbabel's temple said in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, this is a sad-looking thing. They were disappointed. You know, the old days look all so good to us. But as a matter of fact, it was Solomon's temple, much grander. Well, that thing was leveled, almost. So Herod, Herod the king, the man who was king when Jesus was born, started to rebuild that temple. He started in 20 B.C. What Passover is this? 27 A.D. And there's not a full year. There's only one year. This is real hard. I had a banker come to my class one Friday morning 20 years ago. And I happen to be on this point that when you go from 1 AD, B.C. to 1 A.D., you don't go through 24 months, only 12. And he couldn't understand that. He never came again. He only gave me one shot. But you don't. You don't go 24, just 12. 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. See? So it was 46 years from the time he began, 20 B.C., to April 27 A.D. And it wasn't completed then. They got it finished in 64 A.D. And the Romans destroyed it six years later in 70 A.D. But they said, look, we've been working on this temple for 46 years, and you're going to destroy it overnight and raise it up three days. That's impossible. Well, John tells us what he really meant, verse 21. He spoke of the temple of his body. What was the great authenticating sign of Jesus? Resurrection. Jesus never, they asked him for signs. He didn't give them any signs. He gave them lots of signs. But he wouldn't give them one when he asked them because he didn't want to cater to that kind of faith. We're not going to have time to study John 2, 23, 24, 25. We're going to next time. But I'm going to talk about next time the four kinds of faith. 
in the Bible. And all four are found in our churches today. And one of them is a kind of superficial sign faith that looks for great dramatic things to happen. Sign faith. See? And it's superficial. When the signs don't come, it dries up and blows away. And Jesus wouldn't cater to that. But he said, I'm going to give you one sign. What is that sign? It's the great authenticating fact of Christianity. See, Christianity is unlike, unlike Islam, unlike Mohammedism, unlike Buddhism, unlike Hinduism. Christianity is an historical religion. It's grounded on historical facts. If those facts are not true, then the faith is not true. If you could prove that Buddha never lived, and some men doubt it, you wouldn't alter Buddhism in the least bit. If you could demonstrate that Muhammad didn't live, you wouldn't alter Muhammadism. But if Jesus didn't live, you would destroy Christianity. Christianity is a historical religion. It's grounded on facts. If those facts are not true, then it is a flaw, Christianity. And the great authenticating fact is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to give you one sign, one sign, one sign. Barnhouse used to say, and I like this, I remember him saying it one time, that we reach through the empty tomb to get to the virgin birth. There's no evidence of the virgin birth except that the Bible teaches it. See, who was there to see it? But there is of the resurrection of Jesus. And we reach through the empty tomb to get hold of the virgin birth. We reach through the empty tomb to get hold of all the supernaturalness of Jesus. And that's exactly what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 1, let's turn there. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Read Romans chapter 1, verse, beginning at verse 1, to pick up the last word. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, verse 2 is in parentheses. So skip from verse 1, the gospel of God, right down to verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David according to flesh, his humanity, and declared, declared, the words to be are not in the text, declared the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, declared the Son of God with power by what? Resurrection. Now that word declared, now you listening? Well, thank you. <laughs> That's good. I like a man when he's staying with me. That word, by me be technical, that word declared, better translated, demonstrated, or proven, is the Greek word dia horizo. Horizo is the word from which we get the word horizon. And dia means thoroughly. Jesus was thoroughly horizon. Jesus was thoroughly set out on the horizon as the Son of God. You know, I referred to this, didn't I, a few weeks ago. You know, those old oat burners, You'd see the old hero riding off in the horizon. He'd wave to the girl and kiss the horse. See? 
And he'd wave to the girl and kiss the horse, and then he'd ride off in the horizon, and you'd see him out there in the horizon, the horse and the man stand out clearly on the horizon. Jesus lived all of his life under the shadow. They called him an illegitimate child. They scoffed at him, even his brothers. How many of his brothers believed in him? Not one. Not one. But one day, he came out of the grave. When he came out of the grave, that put him out on the horizon as God's son. And the resurrection of Jesus authenticated all the claims of Jesus to divine dignity. He was demonstrated the son of God by the resurrection. And back to John chapter 2, that's the sign that Jesus gave to them. And so in the last verse we read, verse 22, when therefore, when therefore, verse 22, when therefore he was risen from the dead, the disciples didn't understand it then. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture, Psalm 1611, Thou wilt not leave my soul to seek corruption. Psalm 1611. And they believed the word which Jesus had said. Well, that's it. That's as far as we'll get tonight. Here's.